I'm Josh McDonald. And I'm Miranda Materi, and we are Hand Therapy Academy. Now we're going to talk about carpal tunnel, um, carpal tunnel syndrome, but conservative treatment of that, where we're not doing operative. Maybe the patient comes from a direct referral from like a primary care provider, someone who doesn't want or qualify, doesn't qualify for surgery. What do we do for these conservative managements of carpal tunnel syndrome? Yeah, and I think our practice guidelines say for these patients around treat them for around six weeks. And if they're not having success after the six week mark, then um, it might be time to consider another intervention type or surgery, or hopefully they're better by then you don't have to worry about it. But, um, and this is obviously for mild carpal tunnel, some of the more moderate to severe, we know that um, therapy isn't helpful. And there's research showing that um, these patients oftentimes just need a surgery. And I'll tell patients, I agree totally. I'll tell patients like, we're going to try this for a couple of weeks, see if we can make some progress. If by week six, we're like 80% out of the woods, then we'll just finish it out. But therapy may not be, a conservative therapy may not be the solution. Let's give it a try for a while. And if we can't, then we'll look at some other options for you. Right. It's about doing the right things, right? So once we've determined that they have carpal tunnel, sometimes we know some of our interventions can make carpal tunnel syndrome worse, like doing some of the strengthening things that we're going to talk more about. Um, so I think if you guide them through the correct activities, they definitely can get better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what tests, talking about identifying it, what tests do you like to use? What are some of your kind of go-tos for identifying carpal tunnel uh, provocative testing? Um, typically, I'll do Tunnels, I'll do um, Durkins, Phelan's. Those are kind of the three. But usually, you know, these patients are coming in, they're saying, you know, my hand goes numb and tingly at night when I'm sleeping. Um, so I kind of you. I think typically a more experienced therapist kind of have an indication of when they know their patient has carpal tunnel, right? But then it's deciding, okay, do they have something else going on? Is there a more proximal entrapment that we need to be concerned about? So I'll go ahead and do some of those provocative tests, but then I might look more up the more proximal to make sure they don't have it entrapped at pronators or at the bicipital apneurosis or laceratus, looking into those things more. Yeah. And when I'm doing provocative testing, I, I like to sequence it intentionally and not just kind of throw tests at them. Like I know if I do uh, a Durkins, for example, and I hold pressure over that transverse carpal ligament for um, 30 to 60 seconds, usually, you know, pretty quickly if that's going to cause some symptom flare up. But if it does, it can take another 30 seconds to a minute for it to calm back down again or more if they're pretty involved. And then if I try to do Tinell's, I might get a false positive. So I'll do Tinell's first because if that's positive and it kind of sends that electricity or zingers, I call it with the patients, that usually resolves almost immediately. And then I'll do a compression base, whether it's Phelan's or uh, Durkin's after that. Um, but a lot of times I don't need to do provocative nearly as much because they come in with tingling and numbness. It's just distal to the wrist crease. It's not more proximal. If I can start to check those boxes, I may do provocative for the sake of my write-up and justification, but I may know beforehand without putting them through these awful ringers of saying like, well, let's really flare it up before you, before we try to help you today. Yeah. I think that's with a lot of provocative tests, right? So if, if you go after the gusto right away, it's going to make all your other tests positive. So yeah. Yeah. Being careful with that for sure. Um, okay. So let's say we've identified that it's a positive sign, positive indications for carpal tunnel syndrome. Maybe they came in with the diagnosis already. What are some of your first, uh, first things on your to-do list to give them to kind of help make them better? Um, typically, the first thing I'll do is I'll go for nighttime splinting. I'll put them in a, a wrist support with the lumbrical block um, because we know when those patients go and move those, make a fist at night, then they're going into that 
lumbrical plus position. And then those intrinsics go into the carpal tunnel space or the lumbricals do making the symptoms worse. So a lot of times I will provide that education of why they need this custom splint to go up a little bit higher. Um, And then it's a lot of activity modification, looking at what their desk setup, what they do every day that might be making their symptoms worse. Um, And then median nerve glides typically and tendon glides. Um, How about you? What is is that kind of yours or do you vary a little bit? Um, similar in some, different in others, and it's always good to have lots of different options available. Um, I agree. We definitely don't want them doing any intrinsic plus um, activation, certainly not strengthening because that those limbricals then crowd that tunnel. So we don't want them going to that position. I don't necessarily put them in a um, an intrinsic block for the, or a lumbrical block in that splint. Um, we'll do daytime, excuse me, we'll do full-time splinting in a wrist support in that neutral like 15 degree extension. Um, basically full-time minus showers and wet stuff for like two weeks. And then we slowly start to taper them out of it as their symptoms improve. I don't find that I need to do the intrinsic block, but if we're doing daytime splinting, that really functionally gets in the way. They're still wearing that splint at night, um, but doing the nighttime splinting, splinting with that MCP block might be a good alternative for patients who can't function during the day with any splint on because they're work or whatever. Um, but I definitely still do tendon glides, nerve glides. I like big kinetic chain stuff. So we'll do like the foam roller. We walk it up the wall and back down again. Uh, we'll do some of those movements um, just to get that whole nerve flossing gliding uh, in, in place. And so sometimes it's just getting them fr- not like stuck in a small short desktop position, but getting them moving in a bigger chain uh, really is a, is a helpful thing to get that nerve not so stuck distally. Yeah. And are you doing any K-taping, cupping, some of those modalities. Yeah, definitely like doing um, the the hands-on stuff. So we'll do soft tissue mobilization stuff. I like doing transverse carpal ligament stretching where we're doing some stuff, uh, even like down at a um, kind of an extent, elbow extension down by their side. You can't, can't see them here, but down by the side with that wrist extension, I'll do it next to them a little bit. I feel like that helps kind of open that space up. Uh, we'll do eye stim and cupping is usually very effective. A lot of times if they're very acutely um, sensitive, I'll, I'll do cupping with very little pressure on it, very little negative pressure there, uh, but I'll still do some of those modalities to break up fascial adhesions, that kind of stuff. I'm not a big fan of taping. I've, I just have a lot of patients that after we've you know rubbed the tape on, sometimes they'll tell me they got to the car or they got home and the tape's coming off. So it's not something that's kind of my go-to. I haven't had a ton of success. Maybe I'm using the wrong tape or something, but um, haven't had the same kind of success as I do with a standard wrist support and the workplace modifications. Those kind of things usually work pretty well. Yeah, I'm with you. It seems like whenever you put tape on the volar side, it really will come off, right? Like anything on that volar palm doesn't seem to last very long or stay too long. Yeah, There's just so much um, movement of the tissues, like this, the volar wrist crease, all that's just so mobile. We sweat a lot there in Arizona here. We're sweating a lot. Um, and there's just so much, you're touching everything on that side of your arm and hand. It just doesn't stay great, I feel like. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as we talked about the plan of care, the um, kind of our standards of practice guidelines say around six weeks, are there patients that you feel like tend to stick around longer, but then still aren't necessarily destined for surgery or injections or something? Is there a caseload that you keep a little longer or are you pretty much six weeks and, and you move them on? Um, I guess if someone's, you know, is getting better and we're seeing good results, then I might keep them a little bit longer until they plateau, you know, kind of 
not, we don't treat everyone exactly the same, right? So I might get rid of some people at four weeks and I might hold people for eight weeks. So if they are getting better and I can justify it, I will. Um, the other thing we have the advantage of using in our clinic is ultrasound, which is really helpful because we're like measuring the size of the nerve and then we can really see if our intervention is helping them or not versus if the nerve's staying the same size and you're like, well, I don't know. That's just another objective measure um, beyond what the patient reports. And that's an awesome option to have. Very few clinics have that diagnostic ultrasound there. So it gives you a very concrete, specific uh, indicator of, is this working or is it not? Even if their symptoms haven't reflected that change, or maybe their symptoms reflect a big change, but the nerve is still the same and you're worried that they're just going to relapse as soon as they take a break. That gives you a lot more information. I don't have that available at my clinic. So we're kind of working off of symptom presentation and, and some of those other soft signs. Yeah, which are definitely valuable. Yeah. There are some patients who I will push a little bit past that six week mark. If I feel like they're marching the right direction, we're headed in a good place and they're maybe diabetic and not a good um, candidate for injections, uh, corticosteroid injections, because what that does to the um, glucose levels, if it's a patient who just really wants to avoid surgery or for maybe some other complications, they're not a candidate for surgery. And so we'll persist a little longer. But if we're not making headway, then I'm not just going to beat that drum for forever if we're not making progress in some capacity. Yeah, we always have to justify our treatments, right? So it's making sure our payers are happy. And sometimes if we fall too far out of those guidelines, I've had insurance companies come back and say, hey, you're way out of the guideline for this. You need to make sure you're justifying it. And if not, we're going to drop your tier status or your insurance status. So all of those factors kind of play into what we're our treatment and how long we see patients for too. Yeah. Yeah. As much as we'd like to just make it about patient care, there are some other factors to take into my, uh, into, into consideration, but um, yeah, I think that covers a lot of information about conservative management of carpal tunnel syndrome. All right.